Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and we have a very special guest today, uh, one Pamela Ayoyotunde. Uh, she is a pastoral counselor, co-founder of Center of the Heart, a Buddhist justice reporter and co-editor of Black and Buddhist. Um, Ayo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. I just want to share briefly with the audience that um, I was pulled in at the last minute uh, by the, the whims of destiny, perhaps, to, to fill in for this um, spiritual activism panel uh, at a really interesting online conference hosted by Embodied Philosophy, in which I had the, good, the, the, the fortune to interact with this uh, wonderful woman, uh, along with a couple other fine folks. And I just found that we all came from such different perspectives and had different training, but there was such a synergy or sort of a meeting of the minds on the panel. Uh, was that similar to your experience, would you say? I, I, I felt that, uh, and I do still feel that in this interaction with you, I'm reminded of um, how caring each one of us was, um, the vision for a just world that we shared and the perspectives we were coming from, though they may come from different uh, time periods, geographies, and so on, at the end of the day, we all care about each other. Yeah, well, you've both begun and ended uh, your response just now with the word caring. And uh, this reminds me uh, that you are co-founder of a place called Center, Center for the Heart. Yes. Tell our listeners what that center of the heart tell our listeners what that organization is about what does it do yeah so in center of the heart can imagine having a place where you go to be relieved of your suffering in your body through yoga uh, in your mind through meditation and pastoral counseling in your relationships through learning how to resolve conflicts or incorporate a mediator into the midst, um, wisdom teachings through seminars and retreats. That's what Center of the Heart offers. And are these teachings or wisdom teachings, do they stem from a particular tradition or religious tradition? Uh, is it an um, um, integration of a variety? Or could you say a bit about that for mm-hmm. our listeners? Yes. I would say that we come from a variety of traditions. We incorporate those traditions. We are uh, trans. <laughs> we are trans tradition, right? And so each one of us, the founders, Kelly Alexander, Miriam Fields, and myself, each one of us, I would say, is interspiritual in our orientation, and we appreciate interspirituality. We are open to people joining us from one tradition or multiple traditions or no tradition. Basically, if you want to be relieved of your suffering, you want to be in community, um, you want to cultivate your compassion and ability to be in relationship with others, uh, then we welcome you into our community. Lovely. Now, 
based on being the, the co-editor of Black and Buddhist, you're probably identified with both of those things or are related to both of those things. I do, yes. Could you tell us um, what that means to you and maybe underscore for folks um, um, why it's important to talk about both of those things together? Right, right. Well, for me, uh, I, gr- I grew up in the United Methodist Church. And after I left my first United Methodist Church, I... Um, I was part of an organization affiliated with the Church of the Brethren called Brethren Volunteer Service that sent me to the Netherlands for two years and then to Washington, D.C. for half of a year uh, working as a volunteer on peace issues. That's where I learned about Anabaptist traditions, including Quakers. So I sat with Quakers for two years. Uh, I went back to a United Methodist Church, a very particular one, a Glide Memorial United Methodist Church in San Francisco because of their liberation focus and orientation and theology. I also later in life attended an Episcopal church for four years and an adult Sunday school (laughs) in a Lutheran church. So when I was at the Episcopal church in Oakland, California, St. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine or St. Saint, um, Augustine's, <laughs> depending on how you pronounce it, or St. Augustine's. Um, I also had my first encounter with Buddhism. So like many African descended people in the United States, we grow up in Christian contexts. And it has been understood that to be Black means that you are Christian. But then that changed as well as Islam grew in the United States, and with the Nation of Islam in particular, uh, Black people began to claim another tradition. And so all, all along, and I just learned about a man by the name of Dr. Leon Wright, an African-descended person who taught at um, Howard Divinity School, who was uh, a follower of Goyenka who was authorized by Goyenka to be a Buddhist teacher. A lot of people don't know about Dr. Leon Wright. I'm just learning about him uh, through Aisha Simmons. So in any case, it's really important to bring these two identities together, Black and Buddhist, as a way of saying uh, uh, Black people in the United States embrace a variety of traditions. And not much is known about what it means to be Black and Buddhists. So uh, what we see now is a variety of people writing about being Black and Buddhist. This probably started in the late 1990s uh, or 2000. Uh, People like uh, Jan Willis, um, Angel Kyoto Williams, uh, Charles Johnson, and I, I hate to list people because I may miss someone, but Um, They were writing way back then about being Black and Buddhist. Our book, uh, by our, I mean, my co-editor, Cheryl A. Giles, and I, our book is the first anthology of um, writers writing about being Black and Buddhist. So that's where we are with that. And there are more books coming out. There's another one uh, that just came out called African Wisdom about uh, being of African descent um, throughout the diaspora from a variety of traditions 
Incorporating African Spiritualities, um, edited by Valerie Mason John, who also uh, is known as Bima Lasara. So the writing continues. We'll definitely have to touch on that book at some point in the future. This is an interesting space in that the New Books Network has been, um, um, unsurprisingly, about new books and scholarship, and its mandate is to bridge scholarly publications and public understanding. It's really, its mandate is one of education. And so there are various um, uh, channels, various podcasts. Uh, the one that I primarily do is on uh, publications in Indian religions, Hinduism, um, Jainism, etc. Now they wanted to branch out a little bit from just scholarship oriented podcasts and so did I at the same time so I proposed this 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 thing called life wisdom I think this might be the 15th episode so it's they're keeping it apparently they're 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 like go go for it um but it's interesting because some of the guests are the same some of the topics overlap with the other podcasts um certainly the listeners of this podcast would also be interested in publications such you know, such as uh, Black and Buddhist. Um, Could you say just a quick word um, uh, about some of the content of that anthology? Oh, oh yeah, it's it's obviously groundbreaking. Say a quick word about the publication, and then we can talk more broadly about your work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I I will say uh, that Black and Buddhist is a compilation of, of nine essays by uh, some well-known Buddhist teachers, some not so well-known. Some of the well-known, more well-known may be Lama Rod Owens and Ruth King, Sebene Selassie. Uh, others not so well-known might be, it might could be myself, um, Gyozen uh, Royce Johnson. And we all come from different traditions. Some of us share traditions, but all of us are representing largely different traditions. Uh, different times that we entered uh, the Buddhist path, different perspectives because each one of us is a different person. Having Some of us grew up um, uh, biracial. Some of us have lived in other parts of the, of the world and the country. Um, and the feedback that I've received about this book, from, largely from Black people, is uh, Black Buddhists in particular, is... Uh, uh, gratitude, gratitude for holding up a mirror to our experiences. Largely, uh, white people who have given me feedback have also given given me feedback uh, in terms of gratitude, gratitude for um, providing a window into our lives, and that feedback also has been expressed as a sort of um, an awe, like uh, the awe that comes when you don't have relationships, close relationships with Black people, and therefore you don't know how we experience life in this country. The vulnerability, I think, is the thing that they were most in awe about. And I understand that if there, if their sanghas, their Buddhist communities are largely white or exclusively white, it's very, very difficult for a black person to be in that space and be vulnerable 
because in the wider society, the expression of uh, Black vulnerability is often perceived as weakness and something that can be taken advantage of and has been. And so um, those, that's been the feedback from, from black, uh, black and Buddhist. And I'm grateful for, to receive all of it. Thank you for sharing about that publication. We'll put a link to it in the podcast notes as well, so folks can follow up and and, and explore it as they like. Um, so, so Buddhism, being a Buddhist, um, in your particular path or experience, I suspect that doesn't mutually exclude engaging other religious or wisdom paradigms. Not at all. Um, could you say a bit about? what it means to be Buddhist, the extent to which one can perhaps hold, you know, Christian, Hindu, Muslim views and still be a Buddhist. Like, just tell us a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For you. Yeah, exactly. Because I I can't address it from anyone else's experience. Um, But from my experience, having grown up uh, Christian, what I heard over and over again was the exclusivity of Christianity, the superiority of Christianity, the um, jealous God that I should fear in the afterlife if I do not bow down to Jesus, right? This kind of thing I heard over and over again. And as I grew up and began to evaluate human behavior, as many adolescents do, I began to question, like, well, if you believe this, why are you behaving in this way? If Jesus saves, then why are we suffering the way we are? These kinds of questions, right? And so um, it was only by, I'm going to call it accident, other people might call it uh, providence. Other people might say there are no accidents. Some Buddhists might say cause and effect. <laughs> um, I was watching Oprah Winfrey one day, just to keep this part of the story short. She had a little boy, Maddox the Panic, um, on her show. He was reading his poems. He was born with spina bifida, lived most of his life in the hospital. Yet his heart was so big and his compassion so deep. I was so moved, moved to tears, uh, that I called um, hospice organizations. This goes back to an experience 10 years prior where one of my cousins died in hospice. And so 10 years later, I'm watching the show. I moved. I call hospice organizations, Zen Hospice project in San Francisco, invites me in for an interview. They accept me. Right around the same time, I received my first book on Buddhism from Thich Nhat Hanh uh, called Touching Peace. And before I know it, I'm you know, uh, conducting these, uh, these experiments in mindfulness at home. I'm working as a volunteer in Zen Hospice Project, knowing nothing about Buddhism or Zen beyond this one book, and confronting my existential angst about life. My father died when I was eight, which left a traumatic imprint on me. And so Buddhism 
Help me face Buddhism and Buddhists and Zen practitioners. Help me face a part of my worldview and experience that actually had hindered and limited me uh, as a full human being. And so it was very compelling. And it's almost as if you can't run out of things to read about Buddhism. So just reading one thing after the other, eventually uh, attending a sangha within the Plum Village tradition, then going to meditation retreats in the insight tradition, then later uh, joining a Soto Zen community and so on. So that's what Buddhism is like in my life. And my initial spiritual home is in Christianity, especially Christian ethics. So, you know, judging anything, uh, be it Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, all of that, it starts from the initial grounding of Christian ethics for me. And I have yet to see a reason to release that. That's beautiful. What is a pastoral counselor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that work entail? That work, and there are different kinds of pastoral counselors. My pastoral counseling entails things like really simple things like listening, <laughs> listening and listening very deeply, listening very deeply about everything, but also being trained in listening for um, spiritual and religious themes and leanings and commitments and how those religious and spiritual and ethical and worldview leanings and commitments impact a person's well-being and or undermine their well-being. Helping bring those themes that may be so deeply embedded that the person has forgotten that it's even there, help bring that to the fore so it can be examined and utilized or, um, I can say, or maybe just put to the side when it's no longer useful. In essence, that's what, a, what I do as a pastoral counselor. What sorts of situations might folks be in when they come across you or seek you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me pause on that for a moment to see if I can find a theme across all the people who I've counseled. Or even multiple situations. Yeah. Well, largely, largely it is, there's some kind of block. Yeah. And there has been up to that point a struggle um, to to understand it uh, or to name it or even if understood and named there's been a struggle to create a strategy for arriving at a particular experience or a letting go of a situation And people want to know, know, what is it about my faith, my religion, my spirituality, and so on, that I can utilize as a strength for working through this situation? Or what is it about my belief system that's getting in the way of me being happy? 
how is it that this tradition promises happiness and I seem to be an adherent to this, this way of life, these practices, but I'm not happy. I'm miserable. So what's up with that? And then we just go from there. It's so interesting to hear you speak. Unsurprisingly, I, um, it, it really resonates in terms of, so one of the things I do with people is one-on-one consultation that I call, for lack of a better word, life coaching. You know, there's no real word that comes to mind where you, in my particular field. Some of it, uh, for some of it, I draw from my training in the humanities, but the vast majority comes from wisdom teachings and active listening and just having a sense of who people are and where they're at. And it's so similar that a different paradigm, a different name, different training, and yet that process is so similar. Someone shows up um, blocked or suffering. Um, There's listening and there's sort of, you put your kind of um, energetic stethoscope up to their, (laughs) to to their, um, to their, their, their heart, their larger heart. And you, you listen for, uh, beliefs, limiting beliefs, blocks. And it's just so interesting to hear um, that from what I understand, the process and the work is not that dissimilar from the folks who come to us for some sort of um, unstuckness mm. or insight. Mm-hmm. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah. The training may be different. And the expectations may be different. For example, one of the reasons why I said not every pastoral counselor is the same is because uh, we may have different training. So, for example, in the training program, well, training programs, I guess you can say I went through, um, many of the people who go through our, our doctoral level program have already been trained as religious leaders. So typically Christian leaders, but now people from other traditions are entering. Um, my training was through the Community Dharma Leaders Program out of Spirit Rock. So trained as a lay leader in, in inside Buddhist tradition. Um, then I got a, a Master of Arts in Culture and Spirituality from a Catholic organization, right? Catholic school. Then I got my doctorate in theology from a Presbyterian seminary. Uh, and that curriculum was based on a marriage and family therapy. A marriage and family therapy curriculum. And so that's our training. So I would say that if someone's seeking out a pastoral counselor, know that you can't just know about their training from the title. You want to look and see how they arrived at that title. And I would think that would be the same in life coaching and everything in every other title that's out there. Yes, indeed. Um, life coaches are a dime a dozen these days, it seems, because uh, it's such a it's such um, a broad category. And so, indeed, one wants to look for um, credentials, experiences. One wants to get a feel for the person. Um, in your case in particular, from what I understand, it's the, the, the counseling or uh, the, the issues are, are, are overtly spiritual or religious. People are grappling with their spiritual paths. Is that correct? That, I think that's correct for... for, for Many, but you know, it doesn't always stay that way. Doesn't always stay that way. So, so let's say some clarity has been reached, right? They reach clarity. 
And now it goes from, I didn't understand what the spiritual issue was. Now that I do, I may utilize this newfound understanding as a strength to take into another situation. So you clearly have undergone uh, a variety of types of training. You've been exposed to a number of traditions. And you strike me as an integrated person in that you draw on whatever you need to in the moment. In a way, there's no conflict in you. There's no choosing. It seems to me that your various, your various, the various elements of your training, overt and otherwise, are synergized in some way, or come together in you in some way, or uh, they don't. They don't compete. I don't sense a need to choose between which tradition or sect. Uh, would you say that's accurate? Uh, to a degree. To a degree. In mm-hmm. other Please words, say more. yeah. So I mean, I really look at ethics. That's my. I, I would say that's the core. What's the instruction here on how we are to treat one another? So I can, you know also receive trainings about how to be devoted to this particular deity or this God and so on. I can engage in a variety of rituals, but if at the end of the day, there's something there within that tradition that says, we are superior because we believe this, right? Or um, these people should be marginalized because they are inadequate. I reject that. It doesn't matter what tradition it comes from. I reject that. How do I I put it into words? It seems to me that while different traditions say different things, precisely what you're saying, you sort of, for yourself, can separate the wheat from the chaff. You're not pushed and pulled. there There are core values that drive you and you seem to instinctively or through experience um, just know which elements of religious traditions aren't for you and which are for example if a religious tradition has a tenant of exclusive of exclusivity mm-hmm. um, you innately uh, you're able to sort of chart your own course through that <laughs> and um, uh, unsurprisingly, perhaps it's not dissimilar for me in my circumstance with various trainings um, and leanings. But I wonder if you could say more about that process. Like, whereby do you arrive at mm-hmm. what you feel to be ethically right or sound? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess going back to your other question, Raj, about why it's important to talk about being Black and Buddhist, right? So before I was uh, a Buddhist practitioner, I was Black. <laughs> and remain Black in the United States. And so I grew up in Indianapolis. Uh, I was born in the early 60s, and I was bused to an all-white school. And But before that, I lived in a largely Black community that was increasingly becoming Black because white people were leaving. Right, And so this uh, experience, lived experience of watching people you know, uh, believe that they are superior right? and um, that other people, the group that I belong to, 
are inferior, I know the pain of that. I know the suffering of that. I know the delusion of that. And so um, I know the untruth of that. So since I'm trying to live into truth and inclusivity, and I love diversity, and that is the reality, whether I love it or not, and you know, based, back to your integrated part, since I am a lover of the Tao Te Ching, and I try to live into the way, um, I feel more at peace living into the way than uh, rejecting the reality of things. What, if you could wave a wand, a magic wand, and there was a bit, a, 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 a bit of creation that we could change of our of the social fabric of our lives or our culture or civilization or our nation or what have you, what would you? And I'm sure there's a long list, <laughs> but what might you most hope uh, would change mm-hmm. in the social landscape? You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm smiling. I'm, I love that question about the magic wand. It's actually a question I have been asking all week. Again, bringing the similarities between life coaching and pastoral counseling. If you could wave that magic wand. Um, if I could wave a magic wand, could I change the past? Is it, would I be allowed in this thought experiment to change the past? My questions are typically generative and not limiting, so I invite you to apply it as you will. Okay. Um, well, I'd rather not. I'd rather go forward, not backward. Uh, uh, if I could mag- wave a magic wand, I would wave it in such a way that people across the globe would take a day. We would all take the same day. And quiet ourselves for 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. Quiet ourselves. On this day, we would commit to receiving the truth of our experiences across the globe. That truth, those truths would include that this planet is populated by all kinds of people, all deserving of dignity, all of equal worth, no one more entitled to access natural resources than the next. All of us would adopt an ethos of generosity that no matter where on the globe you are and no matter where on the globe I am, we will find a way because we have the ingenuity and resources to do this. We will find a way for everyone to be fed, housed, clothed, and have drinkable water and also on this day, we will come together as a global society and vow to reduce greenhouse gas emissions for as long as we can to do the most we can to make this planet habitable, habitable for all the children we've brought onto this planet. Amen. So be it. <laughs> Swaha, to use an Indian term or tatas too. Um, you know, it's. 
I mean, intuitive in the sense of, you know, stuff comes to me, answers come to me before the questions do, right? <laughs> and I have to think about how to show my work. I've had this instinct for some time that just was through the roof during the pandemic. And I don't think we'll understand it for a hundred years or so, but we're becoming, and we have to become a globe. We have to function, think, breathe as a globe. And the pandemic is very much, I think, one of the major growing pains of understanding that we share more in common. We're at the mercy of the elements. Um, and uh, you know, we, 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 uh, there's, we have so much more in common that are different in terms of what makes us human. And uh, I don't think it's an if, I think it's a when. But I do think that we will one day be much more of a globe in terms of access to resources, in terms of the dignity of all human beings, etc., etc., etc. Now that might sound lofty and horribly idealistic, right? It doesn't sound horribly idealistic to me. Well. Not to you, okay. not to folks, not to dreamers like you and I, <laughs> right. not to folks whose job it is to bring the future into the present by ideating upon an ideal. This is where we live. Mm -hmm. We live in the ideal. So if we can bring a fraction of it onto earth, oh, fine. But we live in the ideal. And this is part of, I think, what folks like you and I do. Um, a lovely ideal. What would you, um, what do you invite listeners of this podcast to do? Either in terms of I mean, anything, in terms of next steps, in terms of um, ways to address their own issues or struggling. Like, what would someone listening to this do? What can we call them to do? Do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. The things that we have to do are very difficult things to do. That's the. That's the reality of, um, of having to change our consciousness and our lifestyle. I'm going back to some, maybe some lessons I learned years ago about this term, uh, delayed gratification. When is the last time we had a conversation about delayed gratification? I don't even remember the last time I've heard anyone say those two words together. In the country I live in, in the United States, our, our, the um, mechanisms for meeting a desire have been so revved up that people lose their minds when they don't get what they want immediately. Think it would be worthwhile, given the existential threats before us, that we begin to consider the value of delayed gratification. And I don't mean it in the sense of if you're patient enough, you'll get what you want, like the book of Job. That's one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Job. That book has been interpreted as the reason why Job got what he lost times two is because he was patient. So therefore, just be patient and you'll get what you want and more. So that's not what I mean by delayed gratification in the, in the context that we're talking about right now, Raj. I'm talking about letting go of having a desire for something that is not needed 
so that we can grow in a, de- in a wholesome desire for that which is needed and work towards that, which would then probably uh, automatically do with the desire for what was initially uh, desired, right? That just slips away because now our attention is on the wholesome desire. What is wholesome desire? What is the wholesome desire that arises in this type of delayed gratification? Yeah. We ter- turn towards ourselves and maybe recognize already for many of us, not all of us, many of us have what we need. I have what I need. Do you have what you need? Let me ask. Do you have what you need? You. Can I offer something so that you have what you need? As I'm focused on you and helping you meet your needs, what I was thinking about before kind of dissipates. So that's what I would invite us to do. And then think about this because I don't I don't see us moving through climate disaster or climate catastrophe or climate change if we don't come together politically. This is a political decision about whether we're going to deal with other nations to reduce pollution. And so if we can push our nation and keep our nation as a leader in, uh, in reducing pollution on the ground and in the air, then that gives us a purchase in the world to influence other nations to do the same. When we've, I think we've learned this recently, when the United States falls down as a beacon, other nations, not all, but other nations say, oh, well, I don't have to rise to that level because the United States is not rising to that level. How many people did we see, how many nation, nations leaders did we see emulate our former nation's leader on COVID, back to the issue of COVID, and look at where we are now. So we've got some hard lessons to learn. Those of us who survived this, I hope we do learn. If I were to personify the globe or the species or the human experience as a person, it would be a person who is nearly, if not already, on their knees in crisis. And those are always the people that either either A, go off the deep end, or seek and get and receive help. And so it feels to me like this crisis that we are living through is potentially the beginning of the end or the beginning of the turnaround the comeback, the transformation. Now, I had this in my brain about six to nine months ago, but it hit me like a ton of bricks, like a transmission, that the pandemic is an analog to and a stepping stone to dealing with climate change. Because in both situations, we are imperiled by virtue of our very bodies and our our human experience. We are not imperiled by virtue of our citizenship or race or color. The the, the sun rays don't care. The the, the virus doesn't care. And it shows us that at the end of the day, we are at the mercy of the forces of nature. And 
neither of these crises care what your passport looks like or what you have between your legs or, or how you use it. And it seems to me that 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 working through the tribal nationalistic bickering that we need to to really address the pandemic. And it's been less than stellar, but we've made global strides in ways that we never thought possible because necessity is the mother of invention. But the pandemic is the precursor to solving the climate crisis. And ultimately, I think, crystallizing a, a, a globe. Wow. I'm, you know, it's good dreamers. <laughs> Talk to dreamers because you've got me dreaming. <laughs> I'm serious. You've got me dreaming and, um, and appreciating the way you dream and the articulation of your dreams. I'm serious. You know, I'm serious. If, if you don't mind, I know I'm not the host of this podcast. I'm Ask me whatever you'd like. Okay, great. Thank you. I want to go back to how you were describing uh, the anthropomorphizing of the planet on its knees, on our knees. And then you said, I think there are a couple of options. One is we've been reduced to our knees. And in that, I heard um, we've become disabled, if you will, incapable of doing what we need to do as human beings because we've been reduced. That's one way of being on your knees. Another one is being humbled, but also still able to do what needs to be done. And as is, did I understand you right, Rod? Um, so the thought experiment I was having in that moment is that um, people come to me generally for counsel when they're in crisis. Um, sometimes it's fairly serious. Other times it's sort of this nagging existential, vocational, relational crisis that they've been in for years, but they really don't want to go on. They're really, it's at its breaking point and they want help. So they seek help or the time feels right type thing. So, so this, um, this amazing person called the human species, <laughs> the human experience has been in, crisis for the last year and a half and brought to its knees. I think for some of us that is uh, out of just exhaustion. For some of us that's out of humility and grace. For some of us that's against our will kicking and screaming, right? There's that element. But what I mean to say is when one reaches that crisis or is brought to their knees, or is knocked off their horse, they either worsen or they seek the corrective to get back on track. I mean, there, there are many shades of gray, but overarchingly, um, someone, uh, so many analogies, someone is struggling with drugs, they have a really terrible bender of a weekend. Well, either they've hit rock bottom, or um, death will come before rock bottom. You see? And so, so, uh, so our... Uh, uh, we are in a crisis as a globe. We have been in some time. Uh, the sort of, I think we probably have turned the worst corner, but who knows? And so because of the crisis we're enduring as a globe, we have the opportunity to seek and get help to be a better person. Mm -hmm. You see, do. does the analogy make sense? It does. And I would like to offer a third 
in either in between or outside. I'll let you, the dreamer, figure it out, and then we can talk about it later, <laughs> which is while on our knees, whether we got to our knees because we were pushed down or we recognize uh, our humility, from, the, from a pastoral counselor's perspective, this one in particular, dropping ourselves, being lowered and leveled, right? In a variety of our traditions is a prayer pose, bowing on our knees, prostrating, right? And so however we get to our knees, however we are reduced to our knees, we can spend a little bit of time recognizing uh, that we are part of something that's just so beyond us. You don't have to believe in a God. You don't have to believe in spirits or deities. But it is really important for us to know that, uh, that we are small as it relates to this existence we are in. And because of the, I say the size of the individual, we have to co- work collectively. How can this position of prayer, prostration, humility, Help me connect with people, especially people um, who I have deemed different, radically different from myself. What is that one thing that's going to help me remember our similarity? And can we work from that place? Can we focus there rather than be distracted by our differences that keep us apart? That's beautiful. It certainly, when one is brought to one's knees, one way or another, uh, the ego has been compromised. The ego has been knocked out of the way, one way or another. How you respond to that, you know, whether you double down and become more ty- more of a tyrant, or you ask for grace, or whatever works for you. But we 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 have been, or we should be, <laughs> we should have been brought to our knees. There are forces at play that are far beyond us, and I don't mean that nearly as esoteric as it might sound. Um, We fancy ourselves in control of our destiny as a nature. Nothing more could be further from the truth. We are nothing compared to the forces of nature. Fire and water, rain from the sky can destroy our society. And how many people have been destroyed by flood and wildfires in this year alone? As we speak. As we speak. There's, um, it's not cause for lamentation and fear. It's cause for humility at the grandeur of this play that we find ourselves in and utter triumph on the days when we leave our houses and we have computers in our pockets and we're healthy and upright and we get our mobile coffee orders and meet. Like life as a human being is an utter triumph compared to what it could be. The other thing that comes to mind is, um, the, the, the compassion that the the, the the compassion that can be wielded the the, the 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 gratitude and compassion that can be forged from the fires of this pandemic that no matter how bad you have it and some have it so horribly so horribly to have an aged parent pass away and you can't even attend to them mm. to have a loved one die in such a state and you know in the quote unquote the modern western world the pinnacle of opportunity and and mastery over medicine and at the same time well you know your 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 aged mother is dying alone and there's nothing you can do about it uh, such wretched experiences mm-hmm. people are having throughout the world yeah. 
it, this is what's leveling us and understanding that as bad as we have it, we could have it much worse. And the experience of living in anxiety and fear and looking over your shoulder. Understand that for so many people of this earth, that's what their experience is without a pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how they live through life. So, so obviously there, there. Are, you know, I'm not, I'm not an utter fool. I mean, there are many shades of, of humans, and there are many bents, and there are many. Um, there's no shortage of people who are happy to uh, contribute to or capitalize upon the chaos without question. But for those who I think are positively oriented or spiritually oriented, um, for all of its wreckage, there are so many boons to be born of 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 navigating this pandemic i feel you're a dreamer and you're optimistic and i think optimism is what is energizing it is inspiring it uh allows us to take risks it promotes real resiliency and uh I hope more of us can become optimistic and act on it. Yeah, would you consider yourself an optimist? I do. I do. Um, a realist who is optimistic and an optimist who is realistic. Um, I do. And not all. And I have not always felt that about myself. I grew up in pessimism. And it was only in my early 20s when someone said, you know what? I remember you being so pessimistic and it, it took me by surprise. And I really reflected on that for a long time. And I thought, you know what? I was expressing pessimism, but really in my heart, I'm much more optimistic. Fascinating. Um, is there anything else you'd like to ask me before this interview is closed? I'm just feeling a lot of appreciation, Raj, and I want to I want to express my appreciation for you. Well, thank you very much. Likewise, likewise, it's been um, lovely chatting with you. I mean, this literally is our first one-on-one conversation, our second time interacting, and um, what to say? It doesn't feel that way, but this is part of the premise of. Uh, of 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 wisdom of heartfulness of compassion of of human virtues being human virtues they're not they're not they can be sort of shaped by tradition but they're not born of culture you know virtue isn't born of culture you know uh, wisdom isn't born of culture it can be shaped by culture i think but i think that pearls of wisdom are to be found in everywhere everywhere on the earth. So it's always fascinating to talk to interesting characters like yourself about this thing called life wisdom. So thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you, Brad. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Pamela Ayoyotunde, her links, uh, her her Buddhist uh, justice links and uh, center of the heart links are in the podcast notes. Until next time, um, uh, keep listening, stay well, stay sane, and um, keep contemplating um, the uh, very many... um, lessons and boons to be had of these tumultuous times. Take care.